Welcome back to This Film Not Rated, a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network, where we try not to rate what we watched this week. Everyone's a winner here, except the loser, who has the most points. You can only learn, earn points by not using your brain. If I give a subjective opinion, like... Alfred Hitchcock... is the best... I'll be given a chance to justify it with as much objective detail as possible, and only if I refuse to justify will I earn a dreaded point. You can also earn points in the official gauntlet, but more on that later. On this show, we talk about what we watched in the last week with no concern for spoilers, so remember that as we turn to the ultimate question, Curtis. What did I watch this week? What Uh, did you watch this week? Well, uh... Two movies, kind of. Uh, the m- most recent one, I the most recent movie I've watched is uh, the Eternals. And uh, remember not to tell the listeners that we're cheating this week and using movies that we didn't watch in the last week. It's important. Okay, uh, is that uh, the Eternals and um, the French Dispatch? Ooh. Oh yeah, this is going to be a wide variety. I watched Last Night in Soho and Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Uh. So. Where do we start with that? Hmm. Where do what, what? So, uh, the French Dispatch and Last Night in Soho feel like they're on opposite ends of a spectrum. Very much so. And somewhere in the middle there is uh, the Birds is more grounded, and Eternals is more supernatural. Yeah. See, how do you want to go? I'm, I'm thinking it should go either French Dispatch. The Birds, Eternals, Last Night in Soho, or the opposite direction, going from Supernatural to... Probably be, uh, be best go to the opposite direction in that case, so we can end on the French on, on the French Dispatch, and I'll just do the That's gauntlet. That's the one you the... want to do the gauntlet for? Okay. Alright, so then let's talk about the la- uh, Last Night in Soho. So Edgar Wright has made six movies. Yeah. And he's made a lot of shorts, and he did a television series, and he did a lot of other stuff, but he's made six movies. A Fistful of Fingers is a uh, comedy western. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shaun of the Dead is a romantic comedy zombie movie. Yes. Hot Fuzz. Uh, if, if Michael Bay made a movie in your hometown. Mm-hmm. The World's End. If King Arthur and his knights took on Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yep. And Scott Pilgrim and Baby Driver. Yeah. Oh, seven movies. Yeah, and now we have Last Night in Soho. Last Night in Soho, which is straight horror. I'll say this about it. I was kind of surprised to learn at the start of the movie that the main character is already seeing things. Like I wasn't expecting that to happen. It's the, the, the idea that, that she's always had this connection with the supernatural, seeing her dead mother in her mirror and that being kind of a main motivating factor for her, kind of moving out to London, moving away from where she was to get a new start and you know, start a, a, a new life. And instead of getting away from it, she runs into someone else's life and slowly gets to a point where she thinks she understands what's going on and there's kind of a twist in there where it's a, a couple there's a couple twists the, the big one comes at the end where where the, the guy gets run over by the car well 
I only, I only have two negative things to say about this movie, so I'll go ahead and say them now. Okay. Because <clears throat> they're right on the tail end of what you mentioned. The first is, I still cannot tell you for the life of me what uh, Thomas and Mackenzie's character, the lead, her name is Eloise. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot tell you what Eloise's condition or situation is. It seems like something that if she indulges it more, it affects her more. Uh, I don't think it's a mental health thing. I think it is some sort of supernatural thing. Um, but, you know, there's a point where uh, Anya Taylor-Joy's character, Sandy, Sandy straight up walks up and pushes her and she falls down on the street. They have a physical interaction once in the movie. Hmm. And then uh, I can excuse in the end when they're in a room uh Anya Taylor Joy's grown up character. Yeah. And uh Eloise are in a room and a uh, hand reaches up and trips Eloise. I can excuse all this stuff as all of it happening in sort of like a representation of what's going on. Yeah. But up until then, the level of being able to interact with everything and whether or not it's a memory, the fact that nobody ever really, you know, notices when she shatters something, the fact that she's privileged to seeing these visions and how far they go. Mm-hmm. It's not about you're in this haunted room and there's people going on. It's something with Eloise. And that that is that really kind of bothers me. Because it's the same kind of thing as with us. I think it's a thing that functions. It's like a, a something that ties your whole story together. And it's the rules aren't clear. So the, right. it brings me to my other big issue... Which is, uh, the movie just straight up lies to create a twist. I was annoyed at that too, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, we're full spoilers. So, Mm. I'm just gonna say, it goes really hard into it. It references Spiria, it references Peeping Tom, but I haven't seen Peeping Tom, but I know it references it. And it references a a couple of other, uh, of your sort of exploitation European, uh, horror Sometimes Giallo, sometimes not movies. Okay. So, Eloise sees Anya Taylor-Joy's character get stabbed to death, and then the image of her stabbed-to-death body is haunting her. Yeah. And following her around. This is something that never in reality existed, period. Right. To our knowledge, up until this point, we're seeing stuff that is... Well, actually happened, but we don't know, I guess. It's... It brings up in question to what extent did anything really happen? Was it just a yeah. girl who met a guy at a dingy bar and was in a brothel? Like, did any of anything look the way it actually looked? Did anything seem the way it actually was? You know, the... I mean, it, it tries to establish so by, by having her recognize landmarks that she's seen in the dreams mm-hmm. in reality. So it, it tries to make that connection that, oh, these things are really happening. And then you get the really horrific scene of Anya Taylor-Joy's character getting stabbed to death, and you think, okay, so this is really happening. Yeah, but and then, then it just you under- find out, nope, the opposite happened. She turned a knife, and she was actually the one stabbing. Mm-hmm. And then she turned into Sweeney Todd for a little while, except for she wasn't letting anyone eat anything. Uh, speaking of, of... That's my that's my only other issue. What? Yeah, uh, but uh, going in, in, into those those dream sequences, I, I actually really like like uh, like those dream sequences. The, the, the idea of playing with what's... What, what she's seeing and, and what she's not not knowing if she's ever fully awake and uh, having kind of those visions trip into reality. It, I liked all of that stuff. I, I think the movie is just never, never actually sticks a landing. It, it acts like it's 
there, there's this suggestion that it's trying to say something and it never sticks the landing on trying to say anything in particular. It feels more, and, and this is sort of the mentality that I think Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright and a couple of people have, that they're just trying to tell a story. Yeah. Your ability to take away inspiration from that and things to think about is, is yeah. sort of secondhand to telling that story. Yeah. Still, yeah. in the end, that mean girl who we think spiked the drink. Yeah. And, like, her boyfriend and a bunch of these other story threads, they seem like they mean something in, uh, as a reflection of, or, or like, the way Eloise reacts to them and has judgment on them or doesn't. And in the end, a lot of people are criticizing the movie for saying, like, these things, they don't matter. And I disagree with that, but I can explain that more in a bit. Yeah. But, I don't know, just everything feels very loose. It does. For me, the whole what what I got from this was is the idea of her trying to to live a life that isn't hers. I I I almost got the impression that that she's unhappy with the life that she's living, so she's trying to live it through someone else. Yeah, it was weird in the form of Anya Taylor Joy. And the more she discovered about that life, the more she wanted to go back to her ordinary life, and the more that it just kept putting a stranglehold on her. Yeah, but she also always had the ability to move back into her dorm. It, it's very odd. It's 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 a sm- they 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 set up a very minor conflict to try and establish that she doesn't want to go back because it's a bad place. But this place is even worse than that. Well, that's the thing is you don't really know to a full extent probably until it's a little too late into the into right. the story. But something that I was writing about on, on the Music City Drive-In website, um, positive about the movie. It sort of, and I hate to use this term, but it's going to be the best term to use, is it weaponizes nostalgia. Yeah. It uh, presents to you an idea of a girl who's obsessed with another time period. She's different from your standard person who thinks, oh man, I wish I could have grown up in the 80s or the 60s or Mm -hmm. this time period, this place, you know, whatever. Because she seems to genuinely have this hook that she really cared about her mother her mother grew up then. Her mother died when she was young. She really wants to be connected with her, and so she can kind of only be connected to her through memorabilia from that time period, so she idolizes it. Mm-hmm. And so there, she's kind of more invested than your average person who fantasizes about being in this time period. Yeah. Um, it's really weird. My initial impression of the trailer was that the movie was going to be a girl has to take a low-rent housing thing because she gets into this thing mm-hmm. it's haunted she starts having visions of this old past that she thinks it would be really cool to live in yeah she starts wanting to live that life and then the person becomes aware of their connection and tries to get out because that person is underestimating how horrific things are and they were going to be able to like switch bodies mm-hmm. but i was completely wrong and that's fine she's she is very nostalgic for something and then she learns why and it's because Basically, culture takes and sells the products of things that work from a certain time period and leaves behind everything sketchy about its past. Yeah. So when you get back there, you've already seen the best of why it's going to be there. All that's left to find out is everything that sucked and was horrifying. Yeah. So, in, uh, Which makes me really rethink time travel. Yeah. It, it almost uses nostalgia in, in, in a different way where it, it, it sucks you in with the nostalgia, but then it, sh- it, well, it, it, it kind of... The way that I think it weaponizes nostalgia is literally in the DNA of the images of the movie. Yeah, uh, like one of the, the first times thing- where it's referencing other movies are when horrific things are happening. 
Oh, you mean like like uh, like like with like like with the references to Suspiria and 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 the deep reds and and the blood and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Okay. Yep. Every uh, like uh, the the musical numbers, all this kind of thing. Every time the movie is showing you an image that is nostalgic or playing a song that is nostalgic. The function of nostalgia is to increase horror. Now, sometimes not. The soundtrack is kind of... Like, the score that the person actually composed on music is kind of a standard ghost story sounding thing. I can't actually, Mm. like, comment in my head. Yeah, I can't remember it. But the uh, soundtrack are a bunch of carefully chosen, I think, 60s songs that are... All have, like, a different function when they're played at different times. Yeah. It's showing you the seedy underside of, uh, I I guess, the entertainment industry. And the first thing you see related to the entertainment um, industry is her walking into a hotel with with Thunderball and and lights above it. Kind of, like, putting Hollywood, like, front and center. Mm -hmm. And then as as soon as you get into that uh, scenery, that that entire first scene is, is set up as... As something that 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 is straight laced and and uh, family suited, because you have the guy, uh, Matt Smith's character, punching w- w- one of the older men in the face for calling Anya Taylor Joy's character a slut, mm. and then right, it's all these teases like it's going to be everything you dreamed it would be, and right after that, it's straight downhill from the next vision onward. Yeah, it's it's pretty smooth, but it's really quick. Yes, it's like you get the sense of what's going on, and that's something. Is the one hand, it's like. Uh, I, I really loved the sequence where Anya Taylor-Joy is dancing. Mm. But halfway through that sequence, I was like, oh, she's, air quotes, dancing. And so yeah. I didn't really... When the when it, the sting came, the reveal of what was going on, yeah. I was just kind of like, yep. And that's kind of a hard thing also about this movie. I don't think it's bad. I think this is presented fine. In fact, it's it's... It's kind of just an Edgar Wright vision sort of thing, but that there was a lot of that. It's we were post Me Too movement, so trying to make it like a surprise that this stuff happened is sort of like, uh huh, yeah. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my gosh, I, I can see that. And then with 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 Edgar Wright's visual flair, just all throughout the movie, it just adds. That an, an extra layer of, of of entertainment value with with all the yeah there there are a bunch of his hidden cuts his yeah yeah a bunch of hidden cuts that 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 make it look like a one shot takes where 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 Anya Taylor Joy's character and the and and, uh, and Ellie are like switching through with the uh, dance sequence it, it's very Ellie, yeah. it's very seamless mm. and you can almost see the hidden cuts but it's so quick that and you, I don't you, want to that's I, the thing I'm trying to. to not notice right. yeah. But yeah, it, no, no, no. but it is entertaining. So oh gosh, they and that's the thing. He he's such a controlled director. Like I I know very few people who would take the time to do that. You know you know I'm gonna bring up a movie that has no business being brought up in this conversation. Jumper. Okay. That's a movie that presented itself as being sort of a handheld shaky cam born identity action movie, mm-hmm. but actually had such carefully constructed camera work in it. That they were able to replicate the exact same camera movements so that they could have ter- characters teleport within the shot by standing in different places and compositing shots together. 
And that's kind of what's going on here. Yes. It's such a level of control that I think you could have the characters hit their marks. And it would be pretty easy to seamlessly composite the things together. And that's... Very impressive thing is is how effortless... Yeah. uh, Oh, gosh. Edgar Wright just makes all all that control look. Yeah, it just makes it look so fluid and fun. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that's the the hard thing is every I, I, I this movie feels like it could inspire a hundred different versions of the same movie, right? So I, I did want to ask this when we were going to talk about last night in Soho. That's a thing. Mm-hmm. I love the movie. Mm-hmm. I like ghost stories though, and I like Edgar Wright's style, and he delivered it here, and he had another co writer on the movie, and I feel like that pulled the dialogue in a way that was a little more naturalistic than he usually is, but I didn't hate that. Um, and it's, I, I, well, here's my thing. I wanted to ask, what would your movie based on Last Night in Soho be? What would my movie based on Last Night in Soho be? Yeah, like my movie based on Last Night in Soho would be something more along the style of Portrait of a Lady on Fire or Phantom Thread, both of which are about, you know, uh, period pieces, yeah. deep character interactions, and they're sort of like classical, but yeah. one of them is also about hauntings from the future and things like that. Right. But my Last Night in Soho adaptation would be her grandmother is warning her about her mother's death. Mm-hmm. Her grandmother owned the building. You got into fashion school. I told you never to go to London, but you go there. Okay. She knows in the backstory that her grandmother did something bad. And nobody ever talks about it. It's like a thing in the family and a thing around town. Nobody talks about it. And people there recognize her as being the grandmother's son and and nobody will tell her anything. You're like, whatever. The point is, Eloise goes and the room is haunted. She's not mentally ill. And uh, Eloise starts to explore this area that she really loved. But she talks to her grandmother with these details because she's in fashion school and she wants to do clothing in that style so her grandmother keeps Mm -hmm. telling her little stories that are reflected in her visions and then when it's revealed what happened you have like this this small beat twist of the grandmother murdered a guy and that's what everyone won't tell her okay but she's gradually learning the truth of why that her grandmother could never get across to the police that she was discredited and then the third act of the movies you find out the grandmother didn't just kill one guy the bodies are lining the walls yeah and you know, it's like yeah. okay. you would leave sort of on the note of realizing that she's trapped, basically surrounded by coffins of a bunch of specters of people watching her. And the idea, instead of Eloise being like they deserved it and having that moment with her, mm-hmm. the ghosts, she would realize that while she's being haunted with them in reality, mm-hmm. they think they deserved it. Okay. So they're they're telling her to go away because they don't want anyone to find out about what's going on in the room and don't want to be at peace. Okay. Ooh, it's that's like you make it twisted. But hmm. what 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 would my version of Last Night in Soho be? Uh, yes. I would personally go with the tone more akin to uh Quentin Tarantino's uh, um The Hateful Eight, a kind of like a slow steady build up kind of thing. Real quick, I'm sorry to interrupt you. By the way, the reason we keep bringing this up is Quentin Tarantino and uh, Edgar Wright are are generally known to be, like, associates, friends. They share things. Quentin Tarantino even is the one, I think, who gave him the name last night in Soho. So Okay. Anyways. I, I, I like the idea of, of, like, a mystery being unfolded as the story go, goes along, which kind of happened mm-hmm. here. 
but I, I wouldn't want there to be any trickery. I don't know if I, I don't know if I would have the the the, the bodies lining the the uh, the uh, halls. They like and, and no, for, the walls, just like it was in the movie. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. walls. I, 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 I don't know if I, I don't know if I would okay. ha- have uh, done done that. Um, a part of me likes the idea of her slowly going mad and her not realizing what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be, if I had a twist, I think that would be my twist. Where at the end, it's uh, the the last shot you you get is is her waking up in front of a body that she just killed, mm. and kind of her coming to the realiz- the realization uh, that 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 the visions aren't visions. It's it's her doing the actual acts, mm. and I think I would end it there with a shot that would leave you thinking. One of two things, like it'd be ambiguous whether she would try to turn herself in or run away or something. I, hmm. I, I kind of like downer endings and, and <laughs> stuff like this. So yeah, it's just me personally. Well, that's the thing I will say. I really do like the ending of of this movie, and mm-hmm. it is not necessarily a downer ending. No, not at all. Um, what I what I really did love, honestly, about uh, Eloise's character is basically in the end. She sort of has embraced everything. The clothing, there's halfway through point where she destroys the dress she's working on because of what she learns. Right. But she doesn't, she sort of molds modern in with the 60s. Yeah. So she embraces what she liked and yet she moves forward and she doesn't condemn the mean girl who basically, to me, represents a product of what happened historically continuing like to me that character represents someone who is a not necessarily a victim but like she's under the influence of beauty standards and what uh, in famous should mean and is basically the sort of starry-eyed looking to make it to the top kind of person and mm-hmm. she's a cutthroat like because she, there's it's this underlying thing like the one who's going to uh, get the most attention and fame is gonna one who's who's gonna, you know, cut her way to the top, or unfortunately in the '60s, sleep her way to the top is yeah. the stigma put on everybody. And I, I think Eloise sort of notices that she's that character is the result of that in history, so yeah. she sort of accepts without judgment what's going on. And that to me is Eloise at the end of the movie is accepting without judgment. And trying to move away from and not right. letting the the worst things live on. Right. I I got something similar like with 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 that at, at, at the end because the as as I said before this 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 movie for me is 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 a whole thing about identity and being comfortable with mm-hmm. uh, who you are. Right after she moves out, she starts dyeing her hair. She starts buying the designer clothes. Starts trying to be like. Well, like uh, Sandy, so she's trying to be someone else, and at the end, she kind of merges those two identities to become a new her, mm-hmm. which I really right, like. She doesn't dye her hair back to her natural color, like it's yeah, yeah it's it, yeah. So, a step backwards from that, I, I think would be probably Marvel's Eternals. Yeah, Marvel's Eternals. This was a. I haven't seen it yet. No, so yeah, spoil this... it for me. <laughs> well, this. The weird. The, the first thing that kind of struck me with Eternals is, is, is I wasn't aware of the editing that was going to be taking place because this movie is jumping backwards and forwards in time constantly. Between, mm-hmm. uh, 
So and it it it's done it it's doing that specifically so so you can get the payoff at the same time as the other Eternals are minus one. Uh, the the actual big villain is actually uh, Icarus. In in uh in the end, uh, really? Oh yeah. Uh, the whole thing, the whole story revolves uh, around this this idea of 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 so I know this dogmatic is a spoiler belief. Show, so I know people will already have known that, but I, I yeah. do have to ask you a question. Sure. Icarus is Rob Stark. Rob Stark, yes, character. So, well, to, to, to get into that, the whole the whole theme based around this this movie, at least that 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 I got from it was what the was 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 this idea of of dogmatic uh, faith, where you would follow one line of thinking to whatever end that that uh, leads to. And that's the that's kind of the, the the role that Icarus plays. He he falls in, in in into that line. The other Eternals, to an extent, do they they kind of vary with 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 their own beliefs. But they, they, there's basically this uh, the the best way that I I can describe it is this this kind of religion that 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 they follow that isn't a religion because it's it's it, it's a passed down from celestials. Right? Yes. Okay. And, and so they, they have they can't interfere, and that's part of the code they live by. And, yes. Yeah. And so while they're on Earth, the one of the uh, Eternals, uh, Cersei, kind of grows an, an Cersei. At- yeah. <laughs> grows an an attachment towards uh, the uh, humans, and she has this this belief that they're meant for more than just fodder for for a new celestial to uh, be born. Oh, it, is that what they're supposed to be? Are they just supposed to exist in order to? That's why Earth was created to begin with to to uh, get to a necessary set number of 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 a life so that the celestial can feed off that energy and be born from the Earth, which would end up destroying the Earth and everyone on it. Cool. Can I ask you a question? Go ahead. How come the only thing people care about with Superman is making him evil? I mean, Don't... that's that's what's happening here, right? I mean, he's super ex- strong. He can fly. He's got laser vision. I, I mean, don't know if he can see through anything. I mean, they they directly call him Superman in the movie. Okay, so I mean, oh, that's right. That's people have been talking about that a little bit online about you know. I've, I'm sorry. Did they just reference that DC Comics are a thing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Because um, they did. Yeah, uh, but maybe they're in a, another time. I don't know if like he's evil per se he's just doing the job that he was sent there to do because they're not really human they're not really well, living. no but also you know debatably like basically when you take life and death out of the equation like everyone on earth is gonna die okay well then you're evil like if you take that out of the equation and say he's not yeah. like then thanos wasn't either so then you know to, to put this in perspective they, they, they actually brought up a really interesting point in in the movie itself where they actually start debating whether or not the destruction of Earth is, is for the greater good of the galaxy as a whole. Because mm. without the Earth being destroyed and giving birth to a new celestial, that's thousands of planets and, and, and lives that never get to live because that event didn't happen. Mm. So you have this whole so, 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 so you have this whole moral choice going on, and then one of the choices, uh, one brought, brought by um, uh, Fastos, the one of the arguments given was if they were given the choice to to do this, I I think they would. And his argument is they're not getting to choose. Mm-hmm. And it sits on that for a moment, but it never goes beyond that. And so the Eternals themselves are kind of split on this point where some just want the thing to go on as planned and others are trying to stop it from happening. Okay. And so you have this kind of fissure in, in, 
in in the group and, and all the tension comes from from that mostly at at, at the end of it okay. e- even the uh, the uh, deviants in, in the end don't play as big of a See, role as just, I thought they would this is the sort of thing that I love about comic book movies that for some reason will not die by the way I'm increasingly positive on Shang- Shang-Chi mm-hmm. the more I think back about it too and I don't know what it is like I, I really feel like I should be burned out but I like went through an incubation period and now I'm just thinking like this sounds like I don't, and you have to tell me if I'm wrong in the feeling, but just like I, I don't know another movie like this. I actually uh, like I know a bunch of movies where superheroes fly around and punch each other, but yeah. I don't know another movie where anyone yeah. is questioning the value of Earth, like an allegory for us to thinking about our role in the universe, mm-hmm. and most uh, common religions thinking about human beings being grown on Earth, dying and living in some sort of afterlife, mm-hmm. and the question and complications of us using our advancements to live on another planet, yeah, sometime in the realistic future, and like. Is that a good thing overall for us to continue to live branching off into other planets out into the universe? Right. Like nothing. No. No. No, no, no other and, movies really talking about that. And, and, and kind of like Interstellar. How, kind of. Yeah. But then nobody punches anyone yeah. in Interstellar. I know that's not true. Yeah. Matt Damon punches yeah. someone. But, Maybe Interstellar right. is better than that. But but also kind of like how how a Shang Shang Chi at at its core is a story of a dysfunctional family. Mm. Uh, kind of like hashing out their differences. The Eternals is is more of a a character based uh, f- story where where it's it's the clashing of, of of ideologies is is where for me all the interesting things. Can I ask you something? Come if together. This, if you were to think of the framework of Civil War, d- is there mm. any is there any lineup here? So framework of Civil War, you are introduced to a focal point character yeah. captain america and a small team of people yeah. who engage in some heroics mm-hmm. but there's an event that causes them to have to come together with another team of people who has a different ideology and discuss whether or not they're going to live by this code or by this code it's very similar to that uh I... iron man is icarus how close if iron man is icarus i, I think you get closer uh, mm. This story could have sim- simply been a, a, a clashing of ideologies without a whole lot of fighting, and then the main fight at at, at the end just being the the. I, I mean, it has to be a, be a Marvel movie, so so you would still get that whole cinematic fight, but that fight would represent the clashing of 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 ideologies and and the victor being the the winning ideology, and that's all this movie needed to be, and for the most part, it is. So Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds now seems like just an unnatural leap in tone. Um, I, you know, I was trying to watch this movie with a memory on being in college. And Alfred Hitchcock, uh, for auteur theory, being taught. And people focusing on the movie we watched that was Strangers on a Train. Mm -hmm. And people point out some of the black comedy in his direction. Um, there's a tennis match in Strangers on a Train where everyone's heads is just turning and following yeah. things. And there's the the idea of setting the climax of a movie on a carousel. Mm-hmm. Movie. I said it. I said movie. Fuck. <laughs> okay. But, um, and then Psycho having like a very absurd reaction to being slashed in the face. Yeah. That's like, 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 like don't, don't most Hitchcock movies have like that kind of black comedy style. It's, but I can't, I can't, I can't put my finger on it when I'm watching. Pers- personally, when I'm watching... 
I see things that are absurd, but then I see things that are supposed to be taken seriously, and it's blurred. So, of course, there's there's an example, uh, and this is used to teach uh, an, an aspect of editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, there's chaos going on, there's birds attacking a part of the village, and gasoline spills from a car, and eventually reaches a source of a flame, a person who won't put out their cigarette, and everyone's yelling, no, don't put down that cigarette, and it's just such a weird thing to focus on, and I feel like that's funny. And then he drops it, and fire begins to spread, and you cut to static shots of the lead character, played by Tippi Hedren, mm-hmm. staring, and then it shuts the, shows the fire moving. Then she's staring in another direction. Fire keeps moving. She's staring in another direction. And her head is following the fire by not moving. You know, you, you know what that kind of reminds me of? Mm. You, you, you know that uh, scene in, in, in what's it, uh, Ministry of Fear? Where, where the guy is, is in the shack and you just see the bombs getting closer and closer and it's all because of cake? Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that. Yeah. Yes. And then there is something madcap. But the thing is, is this is just otherwise taken so seriously. Like, it's these little moments where this composited bird attacking this child looks funny. But also, you see, like, blood running down a child's head. You know, Ooh. that's like kind of gruesome. And yeah. and especially for the time period when it was released would have been shocking. And so he's throwing like mixed emotions at the audience. And so I'm trying to think of it in context of when it came out. And I'm trying to think of it like on how I feel about it in the moment. Um, I learned through some of the special features that they had to do so much work to composite this movie. Because uh, Alfred Hitchcock does not like shooting on location. Mm-hmm. Because you can't control sound, you can't control weather, you can't control so much different things. That they actually shot a good deal of stuff and have hidden cuts where a person is walking down a sidewalk, walks past a pole, and is now walking on a set replicating that sidewalk. And they used a different style than green screen to shoot the birds. And they used it where they could capture two images at once in a camera. It's a camera aimed at you. Imagine a camera aimed at you that also has a lens that's pointing to your right. And so projected onto a screen on your right is the background that you're on. And behind you is, I want to say it was called sulfur. I don't know. Maybe that's just because the background was yellowish looking. Is just a, a sort of matted background. And so the camera, the, the film does not pick up that chemical, that material that's behind you. So it's only picking up you, and it's picking up the background it's recording at the same time, but it's layering the primary image that it's focused on on top of the mat at the same time. Uh Huh, okay, wow. Yeah, so you're recording a completed green screen Mm. at once. And so characters would go and film footage, and then they would see that footage and arrange to be Hedron in a boat, or so-and-so in a boat, you know, in order to get things lined up. And so they did this because, like, in blue screen, they get a lot of what they call, like, flame, which is where, like, if someone has hair, it's really hard for uh, technology that they had at the time to, like, you're trying to crop out the figure from the blue screen in the background, Mm -hmm. but in their hair, you can see blue. Or reflecting onto their skin, you can see blue. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's something, if you start looking for it, you will start not being able to stop seeing it. Mm Mm-hmm. Star Wars prequels, where characters have green on blue on them at random times. Um, so, the it's fascinating to see a totally different style of doing that. Mm-hmm. 
But also just like sometimes it just seems dated with all of the birds and whatnot. Now, here's the thing. This is what the birds is. Okay. Mm-hmm. The birds predates Jaws. And it's absolutely an influence on Jaws. In fact, I'm pretty sure there was a... John Carpenter and Steven Spielberg both talk about uh, the idea of like innocence and safety being corrupted as an influence on it. So this is low-key an inspiration for Halloween and Jaws. Okay. Um, because birds have no real reason to attack us. And so if they started to, they outnumber us, a lady said, by like a few billion like well like like there's something like a million to every one person or something like that like yeah it's it it's just one of those things that if the world suddenly changed that way in an instant the world would be hell and the movie never ever explains what's happening it dodges cliches from like 50 60 70 years after its release because all that happens in this movie is a woman Tries to follow a guy based mm-hmm. on some prank. They start to interact. There starts to be some tension in their family over whether that guy's mother wants her to be with him. Oh, birds are attacking. Wait, birds are attacking more often. Holy crap, birds are attacking everyone. Oh my gosh, there's explosions everywhere. Holy sh- she has to take shelter inside of this phone booth. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, we gotta get back to the house. Board ourselves up in the house. Don't go in the attic. Oh shit, the attic. The attic is where Tippy Hedron was infamously assaulted Ooh. Uh, with live birds that attacked her and uh, other ones that were fake that were like pelted at her. But that's the thing. It's sort of a descent into these things being taken more and more and more seriously and then a contrast with these little two lovebirds that were the whole thing that started off the story of her trying to deliver lovebirds to this guy and the ending of the movie spoilers is they creep their way out across hundreds of birds to get into their car drive off into a distance where composited birds as far as the eye can see the end there's no ending it just ends it just ends that's it. It's just an increase of an assault of hell until it's over. There is no way to figure out how the birds go away. There's no explanation. There is a scene where the characters throw explanations back and forth, but that's more to illustrate the the panic people would go into, the attempt to rationalize it, and how freaky it would be to try mm. to. There's someone who goes insane over Tippy Hedren's character and is like, this didn't start happening until you showed up, so maybe it was you. <laughs> like... I, I, sadly enough, I can see that that kind of um, accusation being thrown today if something like 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 this would happen. And it's uh, I gotta be honest with you, it's it's a little unsettling and a little unnerving still today. Mm-hmm. But the characters are fairly engaging. Tippy Hedren is phenomenal. It's ludicrously obvious on 4K that they're filming with a soft filter because she's the star. She's mm-hmm. the movie star. And then when they film on another actress who used to have a relationship with her main romantic lead, they don't use that soft filter. Okay. So even though she's wearing makeup, you can see little signs of being human that are not there for the star of the show, you know? <laughs> okay. It's it's pretty transparent. But, um... Yeah, it's... And then when they drive away through the birds, mm-hmm. the movie has sunk from color to almost black and white. Because the it's like overcast and cloudy, so there's no real reason for there to be light. It's like a natural sink to... They've been in the house, in the attic, everything is like brown, dark woods. And so like everything is just kind of had no reason to be showing you color anymore by the time you get to the end of it. It's very... It's it's so weird that we've gotten so far in history just for a movie this old 
to have so much more to latch on to visually and mentally than like so many other thrillers that try and follow it. Okay. Um, but that's, you know, that, that was just my ultimate impression is I, I still don't know how to feel and I still think it's kind of dated. I definitely would rewatch it just for learning direction and trying to work out what I'm supposed to feel when I see certain edits or what I would personally feel. Like I know supposed to is, is subjective, but it's just, I don't know. Alfred Hitchcock, he's one of these directors ever since we watched Memories of Murder. Mm-hmm. that I just keep looking at their things and they keep realizing that maybe I'm not supposed to think about all this stuff. Maybe for them it was a gut reaction and he understood a story he wanted to tell and the beats in that story and this came across and there are two sides of a coin and one side is dissecting and breaking apart movies and one side is living, creating the story. Yeah. And appreciating the story as the story Versus breaking it down into the filmmaking and all those aspects and what it's supposed to quote-unquote mean. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like those things, those are two different camps to live in mentally. Okay. And uh, so I, I don't know. But The Birds really made me think about that a little bit. Just like, what is that rectangle trying to make me feel? What is this story? What is this story? What is the story is exactly how I felt about the French Dispatch. Oh, good. I, I, I can't even begin to... Wes Anderson's uh, Inglorious Bastards. Was I right or wrong? It's close to that, I think. I think it's my favorite of his right now. Okay. Now, what I say when I mean that is not that it's like the masterpiece or whatever, even though that's that's the quote. Um, the, you know, because... Aldo Rain uh, mm-hmm. says, like, I think this might be my masterpiece. And that low-key was kind of... You know, that, even Quentin Tarantino says that opening sequence of, mm-hmm. Quen, of, of, of Inglorious Bastards is probably the best scene he's ever made. Mm-hmm. But it's really just that that movie has everything from every type of Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. It has the sort of... Uh, uh, the planning and execution sequences of Jackie Brown. It has... The um, relationship dynamics of most of his more violent movies. It has uh, they really. I'm like even after he made uh, uh, movies after that, mm-hmm. Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood all came after Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, and I'd still say if you watch Inglorious Bastards, it will remind you of the movies that came after. I could see that. Yeah. And so what I what the French Dispatch looks like to me is, oh, if you want quintessential Wes Anderson and you just want a sampling of everything he would do, mm-hmm. except for maybe Moonrise Kingdom. I, I can't say, I, I can't speak to that because I haven't seen Moon, Moon, Moonrise Kingdom, but... Anyways, that looks like what that is. Yeah, uh, what what the French connection is, is... I don't, I, 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 I can honestly say I don't know what the story is because the whole, the whole movie... Is is about literally the the magazine, the French Dispatch, and it's giving you these little excerpts of stories from the magazine, and that's what oh. you're watching. Is it a sequence of short stories? Are they interrelated? Or no, it's just a sequence of of a An short story. Anthology, stories. sort of. Yeah, they, 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 there is the connecting factor that uh, Bill Murray is, is is playing the paper editor, and between the uh, the uh, short stories at the end of 
each one you you get to see Bill Murray reading it, mm-hmm. giving his critiques, and just having the author and him just talk about it. <laughs> but oh, this is like the most like artsy fartsy like it's got there 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 is a time lapse scene in one of the these stories uh, it, it goes from I, I haven't remember the actor's name yet but the guy who plays zero mm-hmm. in in grand budapest hotel mm-hmm. ages to benicio del, del toro mm-hmm. in prison and the way they they display that is literally benicio walks in the guy the um the the other actor gets up passes a chain to him sits and then Benicio sits down while he walks off screen and then it flashes 20 years later. <laughs> and that's the aging scene. It's all in one shot. It's camera straight. Um, uh, uh, See, that's the instinct to do that. The likelihood that that very much was just like, and will cut to you sitting there wearing the same chain and it'll say 20 years later. But then in the editing room, the editing room, they were watching them pass the chain off and they were like, I like that. Yep. Like. <laughs> but, but in then like each of these short stories themselves, you could extrapolate some sort of meaning for them uh, be, between each one. And, and, and those meanings differ uh, vastly. Like, like there, 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 there is no interconnecting theme between the stories. They all have their own little moral and, and, and things. It's just Wes Anderson saying, I want to do a series of short stories. How can I connect them through this uh, narrative device? And it, it begins with Bill, with with uh, Bill Murray's death, hmm. and going through, and then after that, it goes through how he wants to be buried, and and and, and the stipulations with with that, and then it goes through. I'm assuming what is the last days of, of his life while working on on the paper, and there's this like this this running joke of, of him just saying no crying in my office, and then hmm. the camera pan pans up, no crying, and then he's giving an interview in one of the later um, stories, and he's. Sitting in front of a jail cell with an with a writer that he's about to hire, and he's about and the writer's about to cry because he he knows he's about to get hired, and he just deadpan, no crying. Okay, um, well, I mean, so did you like the movie? I enjoyed. Is the it movie. good? It, it's really good. Hey, we haven't started the gauntlet. <laughs> we haven't started the gauntlet yet. Yeah, it's because I asked you the first question. So, oh, oh, the movie was good. Oh, out of is the uh, movie you, good or bad? You fucking tricky little bitch. What was your favorite scene? I don't know if I would call it a scene, but there's the the the, the whole sequence that has to do with Benicio del, del Toro's story, and the way that that's shot and 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 portrayed. There, there there's something about the way that story is told that uh, gives you a sense of of exactly what Wes Anderson is is. is trying to do i think that's subjective mm. no there's something there's something about it that gives you a sense of what wes anderson is trying to do so try and justify it it's the first time you see within the movie all the editing tricks and narrative Mm -hmm. and 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 and, 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 uh, narrative tools shown and then that one sequence and and you can look at that and see everything that's being used there being used in other little snippets that was a nice nice answer okay so i mean i mean what sucked about the movie you know i'll i'll, I'll just go ahead and say it. It, it it takes a while to get to it, it takes a while for 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 the audience to understand what is that what exactly is going on with 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 within the movie but once but once it clicks you're in for the ride mm, that is i know 
That is subjective, especially since you were talking for an audience rather than for yourself. If you had worded that maybe along the lines of like, I felt this and this and then I mm. was along for the ride, I'm, mm. you might have gotten out of that. Okay. Rank the actors in the movie. The actors? The whole ass list of actors. I mean, you don't get to cheat. I'm not looking this up. Rank the actors in in uh, the French Dispatch from best to worst. From best to worst? Uh, I I do have a favorite this time, so uh, just go ahead and hit the buzzer because my favorite actor in this movie was actually in the the what was the writer of the last story, and I can't remember his name, but I think he's playing Commissioner Gordon in in Jeffrey movie. Wright. Yeah, Jeffrey Wright is in the French Dispatch. Yeah, he yeah nice. uh, he, uh, followed by this is my Jeffrey Wright impression. Followed by Benicio del, 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 del Toro, closely by uh, uh, Adrian Brody. You know, and, when you only get buzzed once. I know. And then I... God, I love Adrian Brody. I don't know why. Adrian Brody's character in this movie. Imagine his character from the Grand Budapest Hotel, but yeah. he's an art snob. Nice. So, tell me your favorite quote from the movie. <laughs> don't cry. You could have said, I said my favorite quote earlier when I said that a character said, don't cry. That would have been... I get it. Uh, um, no, for real. What do you like about the movie? What I like about every other Wes Anderson movie is it's, it's, it's the way that, that it's it's shot, the way that, that it's, it's uh, written. The way that Wes Anderson tells a story, it, it, it feels like... To me, it, it feels like... Uh, like 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 you're flipping through the pages of a storybook, mm-hmm. and kind of like with uh, with uh, fan, fan, fantastic with the uh, fantastic Mister Fox, you, you you and it's especially with 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 the French text back because you're going from story to story. You it, it it you 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 get that that sensation that you're being told a story as um, that you get the sensation that you're being told a story. Okay, so that first bit that was an objective statement if you hold it on its own so even though technically i asked you and you gave me an answer uh i could just be like did you like that about the movie you did did you yeah was that is that is that the next because if you said yeah then i could buzz it oh. uh did you learn anything from the story you know what it it, it 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 hammers home something that 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 i like to think about from from time to time and you're you're getting snippets of 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 life through multiple different angles and 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 uh and viewpoints did it make you think differently about anybody else's life and viewpoints i actually don't know how to answer this question so uh. Ah, that is a fact did you learn anything about movies from watching this honestly not really it's it's kind of a Wes Anderson movie. So if you've seen a Wes and um and his movie, so, you, you 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 get you, you it. You don't get question mo- eight point five. What have you learned from watching Wes Anderson movies about movies? There's many different ways to tell a story through through uh, through uh, movies, and Wes Anderson has just found a way that suits him fairly well. Aha! Fairly well. So close to actually getting to- through that one again. Yes. So. Uh, what would make you watch this again? You know, I, I got the sense that I'm I, I I've missed something, and so 
with mm. with with uh, Wes Anderson, there, you, there's always those those little things mm. in each of his 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 movies that you you don't always pick up on a first showing. So I would like to go back and see if I could find those. Mm. Can you give me an example? I want to say with there's something with Fantastic Mr. Fox. I'm I'm pretty sure I I I I I, I, I didn't realize that that uh, it went once Mr. Fox turned around after he got his tail back. I think there there's an actual staple mark in his body pinning his yeah. tail to him. Yeah. Okay, so the big question: this is this movie has like an expansive, impressive cast. Mm-hmm. Oh, you said it, huh? so that's impressive. So. Um, Damn it. <laughs> but would Nicolas Cage have made it better? I'm going to say, I don't, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I would think Nicolas Cage would not make any Wes Anderson movie particularly better. It's sort of, um, he either serves the role Wes Anderson needs filled or not, and Nicolas Cage tends to have right. his own. Like, there, you, you have, like, yeah. Wes Anderson, and then you have someone who has his own sort of creative. So. I'll I'll just say Trust, like jammed into it. I'll just say this: I can I can see roles that Nicolas Cage could fit in with this movie. I can't see him doing those roles better. Oh no! So that's the end of the gauntlet, and I got all the points. So <laughs> no, no, you skipped like four of them, I think. Okay. Um. But I'll definitely tally it up later and thank everybody else on this uh, uh, other end of these headphones or your phone or wherever you're listening from. Basically, our listeners is what I'm trying to say. Thank you for listening. And um, so we have been this film not rated. And uh, if you liked some of the stuff that we said, remember, you can always reach out for any comments or criticisms. Uh, you can talk to me at High Contrast FLM on Twitter. Uh, you can talk to me uh, at 90sgamer407 on Twitter, or if you are interested, you can pop into one of my Twitch streaming games, and you can follow me there at uh, um, at uh, Merrick underscore Tainment. I stream every now and then. And uh, the first me was Eric, the second me was Curtis. So, uh, yeah, remember we are a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network, so if you want to listen to a little bit more of a fantasy football kind of thing, if you are a rounded person with rounded interests, unlike myself... Please go check out the musiccitydrivein.com and take a look at somebody else. We got Matt, we got Ricky, we got Jacob, we got Christian, we got so many other people out there who are giving thoughtful, incisive points on their own passions and their own projects. So check them out. Thank you. We'll talk to you guys next time.